All right, well, let's pray together one more time. Let's ask God uh, to bless the reading, the preaching of His Word. Ask for His help now. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come now before You, knowing that You are the God of all mercy. You are the God of all comfort. And You, O Lord, delight to bless the preaching of Your Word. And Father, I pray to that end, Lord, that Your people may be encouraged, the church would be built up, and that Your Word would be accurately preached for Your honor and for Your glory. Please encourage us, O God, as we go through Your Word. Lift up our heads. Encourage us in our daily walk, in our daily life, as we struggle and sojourn through a strange land. May You give us the heart of a pilgrim. And may You give us the perspective of those who are just passing through so that we would be heavenly-minded and that we would be dominated with an eternal perspective of all things. We ask Your help now to bless Your Word and to build up Your church. We ask Your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are looking at this section now of Hebrews chapter 11, and it is the last couple of verses, and so we are come to a close here of this glorious chapter of Scripture. What is this... Um, What is this section all about? What are these verses about? I would say that I really want to achieve something as we go through these couple verses today. I I want to achieve something theologically. I really want to try to help us understand theology, uh, the Bible. Um, I want you to understand hermeneutics and how we are to look at Scripture um, really from a 10,000-foot view, if you would. I hope that this will help us to do that because we have a reference here to um, something so important in the Word of God, and that is the identity of the people of God. And it's also uh, referring to how God is working in an intertestamental fashion, meaning how the Old Testament and New Testament believers uh, are being guided along providentially by God and how He is working, of course, covenantally. Because what is the book of Hebrews about? Well, the book of Hebrews is all about how does the New Covenant affect the Old Covenant? And so we're, we're, we're dealing with some massive hermeneutical issues of covenantal theology. And therefore, it is imperative for us to understand what Hebrews is teaching regarding the way that God is working among His people. Now, I've said in earlier uh, verses here in chapter 11 that what is happening is that God's people are overcoming their adversaries. We looked at that, especially verses 32 down to verse 34. We looked at verse 35 down to verse 38 and saw God's people overcoming suffering. And now what I would say is that we see God's people overcoming together. Together. And I want to emphasize that word together, which is really, um, which is really providential of the Lord because what was today's Sunday school lesson about? Unity and, uh, the Lord's Supper devotion. Unity of God's people. And today's sermon, what is it about? The unity of God's people. Now, I didn't design it that way. <laughs> That's just the way the schedule of the church kind of worked out and sometimes God does that and I see the I love the way God often providentially orchestrates those kinds of themes throughout the church and the doctrine and the teaching and the lessons that we're learning but th- this is not hard to see 
Because he says at the end of verse 40, he says that, that there, there needs to be a, we need to understand the togetherness, that component. It says, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So see, that is what God is sort of eliminating is the concept of apart from us. That is a very, by the way, that is a very literal, very uh, wooden way to translate the Greek text. It's very good. And the, and the, the NASB does that, uh, and the ESV does as well. The NIV uh, sort of explains it in a way, I think it says something to, along the lines of, so that together he would perfect us or something to that degree. That's exactly what the Greek is trying to say. But it's emphasizing this concept of what God is avoiding is this sort of distinction between the two peoples. As if the Old Testament people, the Old Covenant people, would reach their everlasting inheritance, would reach everlasting glory, or what he says here, perfection, without the New Covenant people. And that's exactly what he's saying is not going to happen. In the economy of God, in the activity of God, in the redemptive history of God's people, God is making it so that old covenant people, new covenant people together as one people will be glorified in Jesus Christ. That's what it's doing. I've often said the book of Hebrews uniquely binds the book of God together. And I would say, in the same breath, the book of Hebrews uniquely binds the people of God together. Now turn with me back to chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. Sometimes you've got to go back to go forward. So, we're going back to the book of Hebrews. We see this perfect balance of discontinuity and continuity. We see a perfect balance between a distinction that's being made and an organic unity that is being presented at the same time. Look at verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That's the distinction. Long ago. Many portions. Many ways. What does He say? Another distinction. In these last days, right? That is saying that the, that the, the, the redemptive history of God is moving forward through Jesus Christ. And we are now in the eschatological days, the last days. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, who He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Now, what's, what's important about that is that God has brought in the final word. And so, where's the continuity? The continuity is in what God is speaking. God is speaking one harmonious message. In the, in, in times past, it was in different ways, in different portions, through the prophets. But in these last days, what has come is not so radically different that it's something else. No, 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 no. It's not that Jesus came to bring something completely different, something totally different, not connected to the Old Covenant or the Old Testament in any way. Absolutely not. You know that, you know the dynamic. What He comes to bring is what? Fulfillment. He comes to give us the supremacy of, G, of, of the new covenant. He comes to give us the fulfillment of it all, the finality of it all. He comes to give us the fullness of God's revelation. He doesn't come to give us a new revelation. And so there's both a 
discontinuity and a continuity. And I believe that's what's going on throughout the book of Hebrews is that, yes, the Old Testament is different. The Old Covenant people of God different. However, we there is a continuity. There is a organic unity between all of God's people. And what is it? It is faith. By faith. All the Old Testament people did what? X, Y, and Z. Let me show you. There's three, there's three aspects to this that I want to highlight here. Three different ways that the people of God are united together as one people. Number one, in the way that we gain approval. You see that? Look at verse 39. All of these. Who's that? Is that verse 38? Is that verse 32 to 38? No. All these, I think, is going back to verse 1. All of these going all the way back to Abel, the very first example that he gave there. All of these having gained approval through their faith. You see that? So that God is saving a people by faith from testament to testament, from covenant to covenant. It doesn't matter what administration you are living under. You are saved. If, if you're going to be saved, if you are going to be approved by God, it will be on the basis of sola fide, by faith alone. That's what brings us together. That's what binds us together. And notice here this concept of approval. Well, what does that mean? Well, it may not be apparent just on the surface of it, but you understand that the grammar here gives us a uh, a verb that is actually in the passive voice, which means that someone is approving of these people. And who is it? This is what grammarians call a divine passive. A divine passive, meaning God is the one approving. Now, there's another dynamic here. This word that is used for approval is martureo. Now, martureo just simply means I testify or to testify, to bear witness. Same thing. What is it saying? What it's saying is that God is bearing witness to the genuineness of the faith of these people because that faith has been demonstrated to be true. It is divine approbation. It is divine approval. It is divine witness. God is testifying that they were genuine. What this also suggests, brothers and sisters, is that the only testimony that ultimately counts is whose? God's. You see, many of you can testify to this. Well, we don't even need to go to our own experience. We can go to experience after experience after experience in the Word of God. You can go to Judas. You can go to Demas. You can go to, you know, Alexander or Hemenus or, or, or others, the, you know, other people in the Bible seemed as if they had faith. It seemed as if they were genuine, but they were not. They apostatized. The, you know, at the end of the day, we can give each other a certain level of assurance, but at the end of the day, the ultimate assurance that we are looking for is the assurance that comes from God. Do not fall into the rut. Brothers and sisters, do not fall into the trap of the fear of man. As Proverbs says, the fear of man is a snare. 
Do, do not do the things that you do for eye service. Oh, what's the pastor going to think? I better show up to church and make sure they know that I, I, you know, I went and all that. If that's why you're coming to church, you're in big trouble. Uh, don't do things so that your wife knows that you're doing religious things. Do things because you're doing them for God. I mean, is that simple enough? Maybe a couple of verses. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. See that? The ultimate approval that we're seeking is God's, not man's. That doesn't mean you have no regard for men. Oh, of course not. We want to be a servant of all, but at the same time, we understand that if we have our priorities mixed up at this critical juncture, spiritually speaking, we're in trouble. If we're doing the things that we're doing simply to be pleasing in the sight of each other and not primarily because we want to be pleasing to God, our, the, the, the orbit of our galaxy is out of whack. We need to bring things back into proper orbit. <laughs> Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul understood this on a ministerial level. He knew people were looking at him. He knew that people were judging his ministry. You know what's fascinating about the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and in other places, the Apostle Paul's ministry is constantly under attack. His credentials are constantly under attack. His reputation constantly under attack. You can see that so clearly in places like uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, I was not vacillating when I came to you. In other words, I wasn't flip-flopping. <laughs> I had legitimate reasons why I had to do the things that in the context he's talking about delaying his visit. But Paul understood, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, that a human court is limited. Our personal judgment of one another's spiritual status has limitations. Same thing for ministry, same thing for salvation. It says, but to me it is a very small thing that I might be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, this is amazing, I do not even examine myself. I am not even the final arbiter of the, of the value of my ministry, right? In the context here. He says, but, he says, even though I'm conscious of nothing against myself, he had a clear conscience, yet I am not by this acquitted. It's not even whether or not you have a clear conscience that you are ultimately acquitted in the eyes of God because it says there is one who examines me, it is the Lord. At the end of the day, we are going to be approved only and finally and ultimately by God. The true people of God are those who supremely seek God's approval by faith, not man's. It's so liberating, by the way, when you do this. It's so liberating when you seek to please one person, God. If you're seeking to be pleasing to God, you don't have to worry about being afraid of your spouse, being afraid of your family. Being afraid of your fellow church members or your pastors, you can walk in freedom and liberty. 
This was the fatal flaw of the Pharisees, you remember? The reason why they had no faith, the reason why they were not trusting by faith is because they were preoccupied not with gaining God's approbation. They were preoccupied with one another. See, you can create a society, a culture, a little Christian clique, which what matters more than anything is what does that person in your little clicker, your little culture, what do they think of you? Try to impress them, right? And that's the problem with the Pharisees. John chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. You see, therefore, what matters more than anything is that we are approved by God and God approves those on the basis of faith. Of course, we understand that from the book of Hebrews, but now turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter, just to give you an example of this, right? For some reason, I have been getting questions about soteriology coming from different individuals. Just a redounding, uh, uh, just a reoccurring theme, it seems, of brothers and sisters that are from different states and different people, even in the church, but regarding the whole concept of the order of salvation from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Are the, do the Old Testament people have the Spirit of God? Do the Old Testament people, were they sealed with the Spirit of God? Were they regenerated like the New Testament is, right? And so what I personally have always taught is that there is a continuity of the order of salvation from testament to testament, covenant to covenant. There is not one ordo for the Old Testament and another ordo for the New Testament. Uh, I think that's very confusing. And one of the reasons why I say this is because when it comes to the order of salvation, who is the model for the New Testament? It is Abraham, who is an ancient primitive man. He is the model for how God saves his people. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? He says, for if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his his wage is not credited as favor, as a gift, but as what is due. In other words, he earned it. If it is by works, you're going to earn your justification, which is impossible. Now jump down for me to see this is the this is the, the contemporary New Covenant New Testament connection. Look at verse 16. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. If you do not have sola fide, you do not have sola gratia. They go together. And all of God's people are united in this way. We are all saved on the basis of faith. We cannot impress God through good works. That's a whole other matter altogether. But these Old Testament people and the New Testament people, Old Covenant, New Covenant, which is probably more accurate, we are approved by God on the basis of the same thing. Faith. Faith and faith alone. But we're also united in this. And this is getting more... Now to what the author of Hebrews is really directing his people to. Look at what it says back in Hebrews 11. He says, all of these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. You see that? 
They did not receive what was promised. And what's amazing about that is that what the author is saying is that the Old Testament, there is a, there is something that is lacking. There is something that yet remains. And this is very important because what we're being told here is that in the Old Covenant economy, what was partial for them is pointing towards a greater fullness. And we have example after example after example of that. God's Old Covenant work has all sorts of different purposes. Why did it happen? Why was the Old Covenant? Well, we're told in the Bible and even here in the book of Hebrews that it was God's uh, giving us types of the future. For example, the theocracy is a typological function of formation of the people of God for heaven. So is the kingdom of God. It's for heaven. Another reason why the Old Testament came, as you know, based on Galatians 3, it came for the purpose of keeping sin in check. Humanity being what it was, the people of God being what it was, they needed a, they needed a covenant such that would keep them accountable while the people of God awaited the arrival of the fulfillment of it all. It was another way that God would keep God, His people accountable to His moral standards and at the same time pointing forward to Christ. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 8. See, Hebrews chapter 8, same exact idea. Everything is pointing forward. The Old Testament was a preparation. It was a promise. It was preparing us for fullness. Verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, that is, than the Old Covenant, by as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Maybe more explicitly. Look down to verse 13. When he says a new covenant, Jeremiah, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. Turn to chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, here we go, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the old covenant in its because of by its own sacrifices, those sacrifices did not have the power to perfect. It was only by faith and what those sacrifices represented could people be brought into God's favor. It says... God had provided something better for us. Go back to chapter 11. I want to point something out that many people may fail to realize here. But when it says they did not receive what was promised, it does not mean they didn't receive any promises of God. Oh, they did. They had all sorts of patriarchal promises that came to pass. Partially, they went into the land. Partially, they were fruitful and they multiplied. Partially, God had brought in seasons of blessing. 
where the nation of Israel prospered. They were safe from their enemies. I think of the reign of Solomon. During Solomon's reign, there was peace, there was tranquility, there was safety in Israel. They experienced partially some of the blessings that are chronicled for us in places like Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. But they never reached the full fulfillment of those promises that were given to them. And so, what does that say? Look at what Hebrew says. Because God had provided something better for us. Now, you know that in the book of Hebrews, the word better is sort of an operative term that we're over and over and over and over. Better, better than angels. Better than the blood of Abel. Better than the sacrifices. Better than the Levitical priesthood. Better than Melchizedek. Better, 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 right? And so when Hebrews at this juncture says, God provided something better for us, he is speaking in a very broad brush. He's speaking of the whole thing. The whole new covenant was better. And that's what he provided. Now, I want you to zero in on the word provided. You see that there? Because that Greek word, problepo, is literally just means to see beforehand. It speaks of foresight, right? Pro, the prefix is a preposition, means before, and then blepo means to see. And so what is he saying? He saw ahead of time something better for us. Well, of course, we understand that in the Bible, God simply does not see into the future, right? But he ordains what he foresees. He ordains the future for us. And so what I think this is saying is much like what Paul says in, in Ephesians, that God had foreordained something better. That's the provision that's going on. Turn with me there, Ephesians chapter 1. Maybe a parallel idea as we think about fullness, new covenant, what has come in Christ, the end times, the fulfillment of all things. Another word that Hebrews uses, a consummation of the ages. All of these things are mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, for example. It says, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, that is Christ, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) That's a mouthful, but what is that talking about? That is talking about, I believe, the same exact thing that Hebrews is talking about here. He is talking about the provision that God foreordained for a new covenant people in Christ. And when did that happen? In the fullness of the times. Watch this. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, in things in heaven, things on earth, in Him. Everything. What does Hebrews talk about constantly? Heaven, earth, heaven, earth. Tabernacle on earth, tabernacle in heaven. Sacrifices on earth, sacrifices in heaven. Right? The throne You know, I mean, all all these things. You know, the veil on earth, the veil in heaven. So Hebrews is constantly heaven-earth dualism constantly going on. What did did Ephesians just say? Everything, heaven and earth, is all summed up in Christ. Everything is fulfilled, in other words, in Him, by Him, through Him, because of Him. You're starting to get the feel that everything has to do with Christ. 
somewhere in my notes, which I'm not using anymore right now, but <laughs> somewhere in my notes, I wrote that um, that um, as prevalent as Israel is in the Old Testament, the nation, the Jewish people, as prevalent as they are throughout the Old Testament text, they are not the center. They are not the focus. They are not the soul of what God is talking about in the Old Testament. They are a typological people pointing forward to something greater than themselves in Jesus Christ. The theocracy, the kingdom, the temple, the tabernacle, everything, all of that is not an end to itself. And this is where I think a literal premillennialism can be dangerous because if we're expecting that one day God is going to rebuild the temple, reinstitute literal sacrifices on the earth, go back to the priesthood of Zadok and the Levitical code, we're going backwards in redemptive history. Whether the millennium is literal or not, and that's very hotly debated, and I'll be honest with you, it just depends who I'm fellowshipping with at the time. <laughs> sometimes I can be persuaded one way and sometimes I can be persuaded the other way because there's very good arguments on either side. But I'll say this, uh, a systematic theology that you guys should all own is is the seminal work by Herman Bavink. And one, thing's that, one thing that Bavink says in his fourth volume, sorry, there's four volumes of the systematic theology. In his last volume, the fourth volume, he says that the new covenant is pointing to the reality that has come in the new covenant, not the other way around. The new covenant is not pointing away from itself to a revisitation to old covenant phenomenon. No! We just came out of that in the fullness. And by the way, that's just simply not what the New Testament says, especially the book of Hebrews. And I don't think that's what Revelation even allows for. But at any rate, I want to move on from this concept of something better to what he's, what he, how he ends the, the passage here. He says, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, obviously, what this is saying is that the Old Testament people of God were not going to reach final perfection without the new covenant people of God. Now, let's look a little bit closer at the text here. When he says, made perfect, understand that in the book of Hebrews, that word, uh, to perfect, or the noun, Perfect. So the, the the verb is teleao. The perfect, the noun or the uh, the uh, the adjective is teleosis, whichever one. And when we're talking about that, we're usually talking about either justification. So the worshiper being made perfect in conscience is not talking about the worshiper being glorified in conscience. That's not what that's talking about. That's talking about the the the, the worshiper being being uh, uh, actually cleansed of conscience. And I would say that's synonymous, therefore, with justification. But when it talks about perfection in the verb sense, it often refers to a final glorification. For example, look at, look at Hebrews chapter 2. 
Hebrews chapter 2. Now, I knew that this sermon was going to be a lot of theology. And so if you get confused about anything I say, please see Pastor Chris. (laughs) No, please come on up and visit with me. Don't be afraid, okay? What is it with people that are afraid of pastors? I'm a total pushover. Why would anybody fear coming up to me and asking me a biblical question? (laughs) So anyway, I'll leave that alone. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, you see the, the use of this word in this way. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, that is God, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, watch this now, to perfect the author of their salvation, that's Jesus Christ, through sufferings. Now, obviously, that's not talking about justification. Jesus does not need any justification, folks. When it says to perfect the author of their salvation, it's speaking about bringing Jesus to heaven. It speaks about bringing Jesus to glory. It's speaking about bringing Jesus to exaltation. And how did he bring Jesus to final eschatological glory, exaltation? Through suffering. That's how he did it. And so what we're thinking about this text in Hebrews 11, when it says that we are, that they will not be perfected apart from us, what that is talking about is final glory. What Hebrews 11 is telling us, look, by faith they did this, by faith they did this, by faith they conquered this, by faith they survived that, by faith they endured this. And, and what's he been saying all along? New covenant Christian, look at their example, look at their example. If you keep looking at their example, you, like them, you are gonna make it. You're going to reach your reward. You're going to get to your final inheritance. And guess what? You and them together will be perfected in glory. That is our hope. When he says he provided something better for us, what he's saying is that God made a provision for a new covenant people. And when he says... That apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What that means is that God is going to unite the covenant people together in final glory. Through who? Through Jesus Christ. What is so glorious about this is that this is what the Bible has been saying from day one. Turn with me to the book of Hosea. And then I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Right? To talk about Jesus, (laughs) which is kind of shocking for some people. Hosea chapter 3, we see this so clearly, the binding together of all God's people together in Christ. Now you know you are in a specific context here because of the details of the text. Look at what it says. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without uh, ephod and household idols. So what is he saying? There's going to come a time of desolation. There's going to be a time of waste. There's going to become a time where Israel will not even be able to worship. And what that's talking about is in the book of Hebrew or in the book of Hosea that is preparing the people of God for Assyrian invasion, which happened later on in, 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 in this, t- right around the time of Hosea, Assyria uh, invaded. And, but listen to the prophetic word coming through here. After the afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. 
What's the problem with that? I've said this a million times. Chris Matthews is back there going, he always uses this text. It's because it doesn't change. (laughs) What's the problem with that? David is dead. So why is God telling the Old Testament people, you are going to come back to David the king? He's no longer thinking of physical David, brothers and sisters. He is talking about the ultimate Davidic king, David's son and David's Lord, Jesus. They will come back to Him. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. Now obviously that's we can get into all the chronology and the timing and all of that. I just want to show you that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament itself is pointing to a time when all of God's people will be united together under King David, that is Jesus. Now turn, turn to another relevant text. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 because he just got done speaking about regeneration in Ezekiel 36. And this is laden with our context in Hebrews because Ezekiel is talking about the new covenant. Sound familiar? Well, I mean, we've been in Hebrews and Hebrews is all about the new covenant. And listen to what he's saying. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24 to 28, he says, My servant David will be king over them. Again, you encounter that problem. Wait a minute. David's been dead for centuries. How is it now that Ezekiel is receiving a vision to prophesy about the fact that one day David will be king over the people again? And they will all have one shepherd. Does that sound familiar? Quoted by Jesus in the Gospel of John, there will be one flock, one shepherd, right? And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. That sounds like new covenant language. They will live on in the land and I, that I gave to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Watch this now. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. I take that to refer to the uh, new covenant. Why? Because look at the Jewish parallel. It will be an everlasting covenant. Everlasting, that, that phraseology or that word, everlasting covenant, that is quoted or that's alluded to in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20. Covenant of peace, everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Verse 27, my dwelling place also will be with them. And you know this, church, you know this. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Verse 27, by the way, is alluded to, I believe, in Revelation chapter 21. That's talking about the new Jerusalem. God's people living in heaven. He'll put His sanctuary in our midst. It says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 10, I saw no temple. Think of 
light just blew out. Shows you I'm preaching long when lights are blowing out. But this is so glorious. I don't care. We're not supposed to just come here and do the church thing. We're talking about truth. And, okay, that was maybe a little extreme, but you know what I mean. I'm not saying I'm going to preach a two-hour sermon. I'm saying I care about truth. I, I want you guys to understand the planoply of Scripture, the whole panorama of the Bible from creation to new creation. And in the new creation, John says, I saw no temple. Why? Because God is the temple. His presence is our sanctuary. Wherever He is, we are in the Holy of Holies. We don't go to a location anymore. When we get to heaven, guess what? We are surrounded by the glory and the presence of God. As Isaiah says, the knowledge of God will cover the world like the water covers the sea. You will not be able to escape the Holy of Holies. When you get to heaven, you will be in the inner sanctum for all eternity in perfect covenant communion with God. To be in the sanctuary was the place of highest privilege. You know that, right? One high priest, once a year, fearful thing, through the veil, with a string, bells on his robe. If the bell stopped, that means he was a sinner. He dropped dead and they had to wheel him out of there. Right? Or rope him out of there. But what that means was that that inner sanctum was the place of highest privilege. It was the place of communion with God in the most undiminishable light in total holiness and sanctity. It is everything. It is everything that a believer lives for. Oh, I think of that hymn. We're weary of earth, myself, and sin. Dear Jesus, take me in. You see, we who have the Spirit of God, we long to be without sin. We long to be in a habitation of holiness where we no longer are weighed down by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And right now, yeah, we may battle, we may war just like the book of Hebrews. We may go through the desert. But we are longing for a new creation wherein dwells righteousness. And you know what? Hebrews is telling us, not apart, but together, God will glorify all of His people through Jesus. Father, Lord... Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, it's hard sometimes and we lose sight of the heavenly city. So easy. Our trials come bombarding us and come weighing us down to lose sight of our heavenly citizenship, of the fact that we're headed to a new creation, Lord, where we will be in perfect fellowship with God. Remind us that We have a foretaste of that even now through your spirit. And so, Lord, may we, by the power that you give us and by your grace, may we.